Support for this podcast comes from Microsoft Surface. Introducing Microsoft Surface Laptop Go. Available in three colors, its thin light design, built-in HD camera, and touchscreen turns any space into your workspace. More at surface.com slash laptop go. Hello, this is a prepaid debit call from... Keith. An inmate at the Ohio State Penitentiary. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 730 Podcast, and I'm your host, Wally White. The reason we call this the 730 Podcast is because in the 90s song Ebonics, the late, great Big L raps, If you 730, that means you crazy. Some might call me 730. I was recently hospitalized and diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and I'm trying to make sense of an issue both for myself and my audience that's too often misunderstood. I'm not a mental health expert. But I'm here to engage mental health professionals, athletes, artists, and other culture influencers in conversations that explore how trauma and mental illness intersect with black culture. Welcome back to the 730 Podcast. Usually I start episodes off by briefly introducing my guests. However, the person that joined me for this episode isn't someone that you think you find on this podcast, or any podcast for that matter. It was clear to me that it would be far more appropriate for him to introduce himself as opposed to me doing it for him. So without further ado, here it is. My name is Keith Lamar. Uh, I'm a death row prisoner out of the state of Ohio. I've been in uh, prison for 31 years now, uh, 27 of which I've spent in solitary confinement. Uh, 1993, I was convicted. Uh, I was accused and convicted of five five counts of aggravated murder, stemming from the Lucasville prison uprising. Uh, I pled innocent because I I am innocent, and I demanded a trial and was convicted, found guilty, and sentenced to death in 1995, and, and I've been on death row ever since. Uh, as far as my my background concerned. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. I grew up in a, a small community called The Village in, in Cleveland. Um, when I was around 13 years old, uh, that's my first encounter I had with the criminal justice system. I was joyriding in a stolen vehicle with a few of my friends, a few of the guys from the neighborhood, and uh, we uh, were apprehended not long after we, we started out and uh, was sent to a juvenile facility uh, for six months. Came home from that and uh, uh, came back. I, you know, I grew up in an impoverished neighborhood, uh, a poor young 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 guy in the, in the ghetto, basically in the inner city. And um, to to fend for myself, to provide myself with food and clothing, I started hustling when I was around 13, 14 years old. And when I was 15 years old, I moved out on my own, had my own apartment and whatnot. This was in '86, '87 around the height of the cocaine, crack cocaine epidemic. And uh, um, had moved into one of the most dangerous areas of the city at that time. And uh, a few guys who were robbing drug dealers, uh, making the rounds, and they had robbed me once. And after that, I uh, uh, bought a few guns to protect myself. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. You know, these same individuals came back to rob me again uh, several months after the initial robbery and uh, 
instead of giving them my money and drugs as I did the first time, I, I pulled a gun out and a shootout ensued. I was shot twice in my legs and uh, wound up um, shooting uh, shooting one of the uh, individuals twice in the chest and you know he died and I, I came to prison because of that. I pled guilty and um, yeah, that's why I've been in prison for the past 31 years. You know, when I first came to prison, I, I didn't really understand the magnitude of what I had done to my life. It took me a, a little time really to comprehend the uh, severity of what I had done. And, you know, but once I came to terms with it, um, I just decided to, you know, to try to take back control of my life, you know, becoming a drug dealer, becoming a, a drug addict too, because I, I, I didn't mention, but, you know, I was doing cocaine too uh, at the end or, right before I came to prison. So I had really, really, really fell down a rabbit hole, basically, in terms of the, the uh, trajectory of my trajectory of my life and whatnot. And so by the time I came to prison, I had finally hit rock bottom. And, you know, it, it really uh, set me down and gave me the opportunity to think about what I wanted to do with my life. And so, you know, since that time, I, uh, I've been just really trying to climb out of that hole uh, rehabilitate myself because you know prison is not really about rehabilitation it's about warehousing individuals so that's you know my story in a nutshell of how I uh, came to be in prison and uh, you know what I've been doing for over the past 31 years just really trying to find my way back to myself yeah yeah we um we talked a little bit off record about this but you you talked about that um that first time that you were you were arrested and, and you were in court and, and you talked pretty candidly about what that experience was like and, and how that kind of sent you into this rabbit hole in some ways. Could you talk about that a little bit? As I said, you know, I was joyriding in a stolen vehicle with a couple of my buddies from the neighborhood. And uh, when we were arrested, um, we were uh, uh, sent in front of one of the toughest judges in the juvenile justice system at that time, a judge named Leotis Harris. I'll never forget his name. He was notorious. I didn't know that, of course, because this was my <clears throat> first time going in front of him. But I was I was with about four or five other individuals. And uh, since there were so many of us in the courtroom, he had us lined up in front of him with our parents behind us. And he went down the line, you know, a guy named Joe Bruce, who uh, was a known car thief in our neighborhood, had been arrested three times. So the judge gave him 18 months and told the bailiffs to get him out of here. And so he was going down the line. I was the last one in this line. And he had gave, given everybody a year, 18 months, uh, 24 months and whatnot. And uh, he got to me and he said, oh, Keith Lamar, you, you don't have a record. He said, what are you doing with these bad boys? And you know, I you know, hung my head and you know, hunched my shoulders. You know, I don't, I don't know, mumble something like that. And he told, uh, he said, well, I'll tell you what I'm gonna do, parents, speaking to my mother and stepfather. He said, I'm gonna give y'all the option to either take them home or I'll deal with them. And my stepfather, who never really uh, cared about about me, uh, told the judge to, you know, you know, you take care of them. And, you know, 15 minutes later, I was sitting in the jail cell. You know, a couple of days after that, I was sent to a more, uh, this uh, prison camp, the juvenile camp called More Me in Toledo, Ohio, not too far from Cleveland, but as a 13-year-old, you know, I might as well have been sent to Africa somewhere. That's how far it felt. And, uh, of course, you know, the judgment that I had made in terms of my own self-worth after that, 
um, incident uh, was really low, you know, as far as myself, my estimation of myself at that time. And so, yeah, yeah. So, you know, my parents basically turned me over to the to the justice system, turned me over to the authorities. Yeah. Do you remember what that felt like at the time in terms of, it sounds like as somebody myself who has a lot of experience with abandonment, I have trauma from that, right? With my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering if you kind of felt that at that time, and if you were even able to make sense of it then. You know, I grew up in a dysfunctional household, you know, beatings, arbitrary type of uh, punishments, pain, mental, emotional pain inflicted. So I didn't, I hadn't heard of the word trauma growing up, but I, I had been, you know, looking back on that in hindsight, uh, you know, my whole childhood and adolescence was just about one trauma to the next. And, uh, you know, this course, this incident that I'm, I'm speaking about right now, um, yeah, it was traumatizing. I mean, I didn't know the, the word for it at the time, but yeah, I was devastated. I didn't consciously say my life isn't worth anything, but internally, unconsciously, that was the conclusion that I reached because I heard the judge say that, hey, listen, you can either take them home or I'll deal with them. And, and 15 minutes later, I'm sitting in the cell. And so, of course, uh, I, I, I you know, uh, came to a conclusion that my life wasn't really worth anything. And of course, when I went away for six months, no one came to visit me, no one wrote me letters or anything. And so that just reinforced this conclusion that I had reached about myself. And unbeknownst to me, I wasn't aware of what was going on inside of me at the time in terms of my self-concept or whatnot. But by the time I came home, uh, my parents had moved from a house wherein I had my own bedroom, where I shared a bedroom with my oldest brother. And they had moved into a two-bedroom apartment. As if I had went off to the army or something. You know, I came home, I didn't have a bed. I didn't have anything. Like, they didn't, didn't prepare a place for me. And, um, you know, my brother and I, my brother had, had also was in the juvenile facility at the same time as I. And uh, when he came home, we took up residence in the attic, an uh, uninsulated attic. I'm talking about freezing cold in the winter, burning hot in the summertime. And, you know, we were pretty much put on notice that from here on out, we had to fend for ourselves. And so, you know, shortly after that, I, you know, decided to become a drug dealer. But, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I didn't know it, and, and like a, a lot of young kids, you know, one of the things that I do now, Wally, uh, now that I kind of understand the journey I've been on and been able to examine it from a, 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 a more objective uh, uh, point of view and, and to kind of dissect what was going on with me as a young person, I, I developed a, a, a literacy project called Native Sons to get books into at risk youth who, like myself, are, are in juvenile facilities right now. And, 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 you know, sometimes I get the opportunity to call in like I'm talking to you and kind of share a little bit of what I'm talking about now with them and, and, and try to get them to uh, or shine some light on, on, on their development and what's, what's, what, 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 what's happening inside of them so that they can kind of... Uh, Get, a, get, a, get on top of that process because there's something that's going on. You always, even now, we're always making judgments about ourselves, about who we are or whether or not we live it up to uh, who we take ourselves to be and whatnot. And, you know, uh, those judgments that we make, those conclusions that we reach are sometimes extremely harsh. 
and um, you know, because we don't learn that kind of compassion for ourselves or, or other people when you grow up in dysfunctional our households and you know, uh, kind of uh, aggressive or environments and whatnot. We don't learn compassion for ourselves or for others, and so that's one of the things that I talk to young people about. Because ultimately, what I had to happen for myself when I finally wound up in prison as a 19-year-old, um, I had to develop or cultivate some compassion for myself to learn how to forgive myself. It was the hardest thing for me to do, but that was a requirement or a prerequisite before I could go on and uh, uh, continue with myself, continue with my life, yeah. Tell me more about this uh, this Native Son Literacy Project. Like, how did that come uh, come into being, and what kind of literature and stuff like that do you share with, with these at-risk youth? Uh, like I said, man, when I was around 21 or or thereabout, um, I started reading. When I first came to prison, I I, I got my I, uh, I took the GED, got my GED, and enrolled in the college program, thinking that that was been the you know like that would be the foundation of my rehabilitation, just you know getting my education. But um, around that time in 1991, 92, thereabout, uh, they we send it the appeal uh, grants for prisoners to go to college. And so I really just took it upon myself just to educate myself. And I started reading. One of the first books I read was Malcolm X. It had a big impact on me. I read uh, My Bondage, My Freedom, Frederick Douglass' autobiography. And then I read uh, Black Boy by Richard Wright. And reading Black Boy really had a profound impact on me. Uh, poor, uh, poor Black Boy. And, um, and down in southern southern United States, and he, he was writing about that, and he was telling his story, and it was just 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 mundane stuff that he was talking about, but he was talking about it from an elevated place, a a place uh, uh, where everything had meaning. And in reading that book, it gave me the sense that my life had a meaning, and you know I started examining. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility, and may be recorded and monitored. That book, reading that book, encouraged me to go back and kind of examine some of the mundane things in my life, the relationships that I shared with my siblings, with my parents, and whatnot. And that's how I came to the conclusion that ultimately the, my upbringing was dysfunctional. And reading that book, you know, gave me or planted the seed that uh, through becoming aware of certain things that I can. Uh, um, you know, find my way out of that darkness once I, you know, call sight of the light, so to speak. You know, I can shine that light on different areas of my my life, my psyche, my my, my mentality and whatnot, and I can uh, uh, free myself from this self-imposed prison that I was in. And once I did that, it, it was so amazing that I was able to find my way out of all that darkness that I just felt obligated to, you know, uh, to, to reach back for those who were coming behind and do for them what I would have hoped someone would have done for me when I was 13 years old. Because had somebody came into my life and, and kind of pointed out these things to me, maybe I could have saved myself all these years of, 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 of struggle and pain. So I sent them in Black Boy, I sent them in uh, Between the World and Me by Tanahasi Coates, I sent uh, books by James Baldwin in, uh, Alice Walker, all the books that has you know, uh, that, that, that represents like a building block of my foundation. That's super cool, man. Um, 
yeah, it's been super cool. It's real rewarding, man, to go back and have an opportunity to try to, you know, share some life, some because you know the things that we're talking about, uh, uh, self concept and whatnot. You know, this, this complicated stuff. But self concept is destiny. How you view yourself has a lot to do with where you end up in life. That actually leads me to the next point. Is like, tell me about your book, Condemned, and and what was the impetus for writing it, and how how did you find the strength to write it? Um. Well, when I came to death row in 1995, I was like, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't really have the words to describe the state of mind that I was in, but it was uh, similar to just being thrown overboard a ship and just in the middle of the ocean, basically. That's how lost I felt. And I, I walked around for quite a uh, time in a state of just uh, extreme anger at what had happened to me. You know, um, as I referenced earlier, uh, I was at in prison during a prison uprising, a riot. And at the end of all that, I was accused of being the leader of this uh, so-called death squad of a gang, which I had nothing to do with. I w I've never been in a gang in my entire life. But I got caught up uh, for, you know, I explained this in detail in, in my book, Condemned. But uh, I requested the trial after the state was trying to get me to plead guilty to crimes I didn't commit. I insisted on going, um, going, uh, going to trial. And during that process, because, you know, 90% of the people who are in prison, Wally, believe it or not, are here as a result of a plea agreement, a plea bargain. And this is whether they're guilty or not. That's just how the system works. And a lot of times you put in a situation where you say, well, you know, uh, instead of risking 10 years, because if you get found guilty, uh, 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 found guilty and sentenced for carrying a concealed weapon, you might get 10 years or so, and, or you can plead guilty and get 18 months. And that's typically what happens to the majority of people who are in prison. You know, but... You know, I'm, I'm innocent of the crimes for which they charged me, when, and I and I wasn't going to plead guilty to something I didn't do. And so, you know, from the, from the moment I uh, uh, demanded a trial, it's just a whole lot of tricks came into play. You know, they a whole lot of hide the ball. You know, they were, you know, and the judge was conspiring with the prosecutors. I mean, it, it was really something to see. So by the time I I wound up on death row. I said, I just feel, I just felt outside of myself. And I, I met some individuals, one guy in particular named Snoop. And uh, I'll never forget Snoop, man. Um, he was an older guy, probably in his 60s at the time. And uh, for some reason, even though we, we hadn't spoke at length at the, at the time, he took a liking to me. And I guess he saw something in me or in my anger that, um, you know, drew him to me, and he, and he, and he you know, just, you know, closed it up to me one day and, and just started talking to me. And, you know, I started expressing how angry I was at uh, at, at being uh, uh, wrongfully convicted and whatnot, and he said, you know, well, that anger is going to hold you back. And he was just, you know, just, you know, help spell out my, my options for me, because, you know, we make, we make decisions based on what we perceive our options to be. 
but you have to, you know, be able to recognize your options before you can make a decision. And he was trying to get me to the point where I could make a decision whether or not I was going to live or die. He said, because if you don't want to live, you know, there's no sense of, you know, spending the rest 20 years, of, you know, walking around angry. He said, you know, you can get out of here tonight if you really want to, if the pain is that bad. And nobody blamed you for it, you know, because that's the choice that you as an individual could make. No, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to kill myself. He said, well, what you going to do then? I said, well, you know, I, I, what can I do? He said, well, you can learn the law. That's one thing you can do. Or you can learn how to write and tell your story. And, you know, I, uh, I had written letters for quite a few years up until that point, but I had never done any sustained writing. As I said, you know, Richard Wright, Black Boy, that was one of my favorite books. And so I read that book damn near every day, over and over again, and, and, and paying real close attention to how he was framing paragraphs. You have one minute remaining. You know, how he was getting his point across and whatnot. And, and, and by doing that, I taught myself how to write. I taught myself, and one of the things that Richard Wright said in his book, he said, if you speak out who you are, you will discover that you are not alone. I said, okay, well, you know, I'm going to try to write my book. And I, I wrote a book, a, a thin book, a, 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 a little pamphlet called Condemned. That was my first effort at telling my story. And it's just laying out my story, what happened to me, uh, not just legally, but internally. You know, the transformation that I, 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 I underwent as a, as a, as a uh, result of being, you know, thrown overboard, so to speak. You know, at the beginning of the book, I, I, I cite a poem by Claude McKay called Baptism. I put that at the beginning of my book because that's how I kind of view this journey that I've been on from beginning to end. And I, and I view it in, in hindsight in that way, not, not when I was actually going through it. After I had... Um, went through the whole thing and uh, came out on the other side, I looked back on it and said, wow, you know, that was a baptism. And that, that poem, it started off and say, uh, into the furnace, let me go along. Stay you without and terror the heat. I will go naked and for thus this sweet into the weird depths of the hottest zone. I will not quiver in the fellas' bone. You will not know the flicker of the feet. My heart's a tremble, not his fate to meet. And, and, and what he's talking about is essentially the, the, the thing that I went, went into, like the situation that I was in was a crucible. It was, a, you know, one of these situations where uh, I was either going to learn how to swim or, or, or drown. And um, lucky for me, I, I found out that I knew how to swim, that I knew how to write, that... Um, you know, besides the fact that I'm a high school dropout, there's something inside of me I discovered that is fully grown, that is equipped to deal with the magnitude of the situation that I found myself in. And I just tapped into that part of myself and held on to that part of myself um, for the past 25, 27 years or so. At the end of that poem, he said, I will come out back to your world of tears, a stronger soul within the finer frame. You know, and, and that's what I, how I felt about myself. And so that's what I'm trying to do in the book. And then not just talking about the injustice of the situation that I, that, that, that I was subjected to. That's one thing. That's one thing that's happening that's going on in the telling of that story. But the, 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 the another thing that's happening on the parallel kind of track is my development. 
it's like I'm going from a, a young man to a man in this whole journey. So, yeah, that's what that writing that book and telling that story was all about. Not just about the injustice, but about the justice that um, that I reserved for myself and for my own life. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, one of the really um, profound things in that in that book that you write is you didn't have access to contact visits for what the first eighteen years of of you yeah, being yeah, in solitary. Yeah, That's right. And um, you talk about taking essentially taking agency and and going on um, a hunger strike to to yeah. seek those seek that right right seek that right to have full contact visits what 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 was the what was your thought process in terms of doing that and then also Mm -hmm. what was that like for you how did you make it through yeah yeah uh i went through this whole process you know we we brought up in in this country to obey authority you know be it our parents or judges or whatever the case may be we always are taught or 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 led to believe that there's always a power you know, over us that we have to obey. And we, 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 we live with that. We don't have that, a higher authority within ourselves. We're not taught that. And so even myself and everything that I have been through, you know, that's how I live my life, basically. You know, uh, when I uh, was sentenced to death uh, of 1995, I was told in no uncertain terms that I would never touch my family again. And I was told this by people who were at the in leadership positions in the institutions where I was housed. And, and that was the case for a long time. And, and around 10 years in, after a decade of not being able to touch my family, I uh, enlisted the help of some civil, civil rights attorneys to file a motion or file a, a lawsuit on my behalf. And, you know, the, we went and to try to uh, prevail on the federal court to get these people to allow me to touch my family. I mean, I had already been given the harsh penalty known to man, and it seemed like a double penalty that I would now not be able to hug and hold my family and my loved ones, which I thought was extremely harsh. And so we went through the whole legal process. We sat in these courtrooms with these vaulted ceilings, these chandeliers, these, you know, judge sitting up on this perch and all these, you know, money passed forth between these attorneys. And at the end of eight years, the judge told us, well, there's nothing I can do for you, Keith. And kind of sent me back, you know, to the same situation that I was in. And even the attorneys who was representing me told me, well, we tried everything we can do. And, you know, they were ready to drive off and go, you know, off into the sunset back to their lives because, of course, they were going home to their families. They were able to touch their families. And here I am, I'm sitting in this uh, cell and, you know, feeling just, you know, deeply dejected after uh, being turned down like that. You know, but I didn't give up mentally, psychologically. I still had a deep desire to touch my family, but I didn't really know how. But I kept obsessing over the ideal. And uh, I received a book in the mail uh, one day called Nothing But an Unfinished Song. And, and the book was about uh, a group of prisoners in, 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 uh, in Ireland who had went on a hunger strike to protest uh, the fact that they were being treated like common criminals. Uh, one of the main uh, characters or protagonists in, in, in this story was a guy named Bobby Sands. And... Um, 
you know, they went on a, a, a hunger strike. And reading that book at that particular time, you know, had a profound impact on me. And it, I just got the idea that, you know, maybe this was a message of some sort, this book arriving in my life at this particular time. And um, I somehow got the address of the guy who wrote the book, Dennis O'Hearn, and I wrote him a long letter. And he wrote me back. That letter I put in and condemned just so people could get a sense of the story or how miraculous this whole thing happened because it kind of informed, you know, uh, uh, where I am now and what's been happening since then. But, you know, I read this book. I, I was really uh, uh, impacted by uh, Bobby's uh, story, and I decided to undergo a hunger strike myself so that I might be able to uh, touch my family again. And, you know, and when I broached the subject to my friends and supporters, everybody except a few people said, Keith, you know, don't do that. That's ridiculous. Why would people give you anything? You're already on death row. And I, I was committed to that. And I went on a, I went on a homeless strike along with two other guys who are on death row as a result of the Lucasville uprising. And miraculously, man, in 12 days, while we achieved what we couldn't achieve through eight years or 18 years of all that litigation and wrangling with the administration we achieved in 12 days. And that was just by the simple fact of utilizing our own agency. And that just really taught me a lot about uh, my own personal power as an individual. I, yeah. think, I think with your situation specifically, um, people look at it as being really complex because you were, you were in prison already. So there's, mm -hmm. there's an element of of people being unforgiving. Oh, somebody did something, but they don't really look at the whole context in, in which somebody may have right. done something, right? They might say, oh, yeah. this guy murdered somebody, but they don't look at it in terms of like, you know, your your history, your trajectory, like how how the odds were kind of stacked up against you from the beginning. How, how your, the actual crime that you went to prison for wasn't a premeditated thing. You know, it wasn't like you right. were, you were, you were, I'm going to go kill somebody. It was just an act of self-defense. I don't know. It's just, you, you, you. No, no, you, you, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And I try to get people to think about the context. I mean, I wasn't sitting on the porch just popping off shots at random people. You know, I was in an undeclared war zone, basically. That's because that's what crack, you know, introduced into our community. You know, you had poor people fighting over limited resources. And, you know, this this, this guy I, I end up um, shooting and killing, we were childhood friends when we was 12, 13 years old. You know, um, by the time Crack 1987 rolled around, uh, he had was strung out on drugs, and I was a drug dealer. And so we were, like, on opposing ends, opposing ends of, uh, of this, like, real twisted spectrum, right? It, you know, it's something that, 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 that weighs on me because, you know, there's somebody that I, I grew up with. And then, you know, of course, you know, when I, when I came to prison, I started reading. I started learning about slavery and uh, 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 Reconstruction. I started reading the, 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 the chronology of our, uh, of our people's uh, presence in America. And I, said, I finally started to understand. And, and I, I understood a little more fully what people mean when they say, when you don't know your history, it repeats itself. You know, the 13th Amendment say that slavery is abolished for any for everybody except the criminals. So now, 
you know, we have to figure out how to make these people criminal now. And, it, and it's a real easy way to do that when you confine people to these ghettos, to these fixed uh, circumstances where there's limited resources, and then you put, uh, you know, you know, put guns in, in, in the mix and whatnot, and, you know, create these uh, uh, gangs and whatnot. Uh, it, it's all but inevitable that you're going to prison. That you can be, that you might, you know, end up killing, you know, somebody who, you know, when you was in the first or second grade, somebody who you was playing basketball with, you know. But people don't really look at it uh, uh, from that standpoint. The development of, it, you know, they just look at the the effect and not the cause. You know, I'm I'm, I'm not saying that I'm not responsible for what I did. Of course, I'm responsible. You know, but in, in, in the Bible, and, and you know, Christians always say, "Forgive them, for he, 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 they know not what they do." And I, I think that's the case for a lot of black people uh, or black men, in particular, who are in prison these days, man. Because if you knew, like, if somebody could have showed me, and, and I say this, you know, jokingly sometimes, but if somebody could have showed me like a videotape of everything that I would have to go through endure over the past 27 years, I probably would have took the deal. Because I've been through hell, Wally. I've been through hell, man. You know, I've slept in mattresses, I've been beaten, I've, I've, I've starved myself, all these things. And so, so if somebody could have showed me, you know, everything that I was going to go, you know, that I would have been subjected to, I would have took a deal. So I'm glad I wasn't able to see it. I'm glad because, you know, I would have never believed that I had the strength to endure all that. But I have, though, it, you know, because I, I've learned through reading and through, uh, uh, um, through certain people coming to my life that, you know, I can just live my life one day at a time, one step at a time. And, but, yeah, man, it's, it's been a hell of a journey. Yeah, well, I'm wondering, like, how, how have you kept your sanity considering the conditions you've been subject to? Uh, you, know, you know, I meditate on a daily basis. I, I exercise on a daily basis. I read, write in the journal on a daily basis. Uh, I just try to stay on, on top of myself. You know, I don't, you know, I, 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 I'm taking a, a daily inventory, so to speak. You know, because you you in the cell by yourself, I'm in solitary confinement. But you, 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 you have different aspects of yourself. So there's more than just you in the cell. You know, I sent you some uh, material a few days ago by uh, Carl Jung dealing with the persona, the ego, and the shadow. And, uh, you know, we was talking about the incident when I was 13 years old. When my parents sent me away to the juvenile facility. And when I came home, and my situation was worse than when I left. And at some point, I decided that I was going to have to start hustling to get in the streets in order to make money in order to feed and clothe myself. Well, you know, I was, you know, I'm just, you know, you know looking back on the, the young person that I was, I was just a, you know, real uh, gentle young person, man. And I, was, I wasn't particularly violent. I used to cry a lot when I was, you know, uh, a little boy. My grandmother used to tell me sometimes that, you know, you cry so much, you're gonna use up all your tears, so you won't have any when you really need them. You know, that's how much I used to cry. You know, that it was possible that I could, I would use up all my tears 
right? You know, but when I was 13, it was kind of split in my personality because now I have to become like a grown man, a grown-up man-child. I have to venture out into the world, and so I'm, I'm going into real dark places now. And after a while, I developed a, a persona, somebody who can move through these dark spaces and, and, and protect myself, you know, in these places. I moved out on my own when I was... This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. You know, I moved out on my own when I was 15 years old, as I, as I spoke about earlier, to, you know, very violent neighborhood and where the street lights were shot out, where, you know, everybody was carrying guns and whatnot. And, you know, I became a part of that environment, this part of uh, that I'm describing, this part of myself that I'm describing. Um, Carl Young, he called it the shadow. But, you know, this, this, you know, you know, by the time I was 16, Wally, you know, I was driving a Mercedes Benz, man, uh, had a pocket full of money, jewelry, all these different people telling me, you know, I was the shit. And that, you know, had a hell of a influence on my personality, right? And so when I, when I came to prison, you know, I, you know, I was, Know, withdrawn from cocaine. I took somebody's life, and so my life was in shambles, basically. And I, and I met this guy named Dain, and he was telling me he didn't use the the terms Young was used the clinical terms, but he was telling me that it's the body within your body that's working against the body. That's how he explained it to me. And he was he was just um, uh, talking about the negative part of myself, and he described it as if a sep it was a separate person, basically. And, you know, at first, you know, I was kind of resistant to the idea that I was schizophrenic or whatever the case, however you want to turn it. But the way he explained it to me made perfect sense. And he was saying it, it was a part of you in order to survive in those situations, you know, have to, you know, you know, have to develop, have to become a part of you, had to become a certain, uh, a, a certain person just to survive. But he said, but, you know, with you not being able to control this act of yourself, here you are, you find yourself in prison. Because in order to live in the environment that I, I lived in while I had, at some point, I had to make the decision that if it came down to it, I, I was willing to kill somebody. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. You know, uh, as, I, as I said, you know, I had got, I had got robbed once and I, I bought a couple of guns after that. Uh, but at some point, you know, if you get a gun, you have to, it's not enough just to let people know you have a gun. You have to also let people know that you're willing to use that gun. And in order to become a person that was willing to take somebody's life, I had to become, uh, you know, a totally different person, basically. And this person that I became was simultaneously destroying my life, like taking me deeper into darkness. And so by the time I, I became aware of what was going on, you know, I was already sitting in the cell in, in the penitentiary, but my life is, wasn't over. And the first thing I had to do is kind of uh, get back control over this part of myself that had kind of splintered off. You know, I don't know if it's making any sense, you know, uh, uh, but uh, I just had to sit down with myself and kind of like tell this 
you know, aspect or this person that I'm that I'm talking about. I know it sounds kind of crazy talking about myself in the third person, but I had to sit down and I had to really just take the keys from this person. Like, you know, tell this person, explain to him like this, and you won't be making any more decisions as it, it, it comes, as it pertains to my life. You talk about having this diary. You talk about painting. I know you love to listen to jazz. Like, yeah. What do you find like all these things do to you? Like, what what does the painting help you sort of um, release? What does the reading, the writing, the you know, the listening to the music like? What what does that do for your soul? Just because you're on death row, just because you know you, you're in prison, you know, life still can be had no matter where you are if you recognize the significance of your life, you know, um, um, those the paintings that I do are paint by numbers, believe it or not. And uh, I was watching uh, television one, one morning, late, 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 about three, four o'clock in the morning, watching a home improvement show, and they, they was retrofitting this old lady's house, so, you know, to make it wheelchair accessible. And it was a painting on the wall of a, of a lion and the guy was complimenting her on and said, oh, that's a beautiful painting. Who did that? She said, oh, I did. He said, really? Wow, you're an accomplished artist. She said, oh, that's paint by numbers. And me and the guy at the same time said, what? And so I had one of my friends look into it and send me a painting. And one of the first paintings she sent me was a Picasso, right? And you, you, you get paint by numbers. You think it's an easy thing. So you get this diagram, right? with all these segmented parts of the paintings numbered. It's like a million, you know, spaces that you have to fill in. And when you're done with it, you know, you had this beautiful painting, right? And as I was doing those, it, it, it kind of, you know, made me think about my life. That that's what I'm doing. All these experiences, all these uh, uh, incidents that, that, that have occurred in my life, it's like these little segments that I'm filling in. And then if I bring my whole self, because, you know, when, when you're doing these paintings, it's real important that you, you know, fill in each one of these little things as carefully, as uh, uh, mindfully as you possibly can. You know, because I, I did this one painting by Van Gogh called Starry Night, and it was just this one little green little slither of paint that I, I you know, and I could have skipped over that, but... You know, I didn't, and as it turns out, it was a line that led up to the chapel. So it was a real important part of this painting, just this little slither of green. And, 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 and that's what I mean by bringing meaning to your life. What Richard Wright taught me in his writing, like, oh, everything means something to your own particular life. And since I know that now, that's how I live my life with that awareness. You know, and he's talking about these paintings. You know, you know when you put the first coat on, the painting is it's real ugly and it's very discouraging because but by the time to get the paint on the, on the whole cover of the canvas, it takes a long time. But that's only the beginning. You got to do it all over again, and it's somewhat similar to how we, you know, come 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 of age. You know, we spend all these years from you know twelve to. 20 years old, you know, trying to figure out and we doing everything kind of haphazardly, kind of, you know, sloppy, you know, just not really bringing our attention to what we're doing. And our life reflects that. And that's how it is when you, you know, finish that first coat of paint on, on, on these canvases. 
right. And it took me a long time to really just come to terms, but I just know beforehand that, you know, in order for this to look like anything, I'm going to have to, you know, put another coat on it, and sometimes three coats, you know, because the more paint, and the paint is really like uh, love, basically, if we speak it metaphorically. That's what the paint is. It's love. So, you know, the the more love that you're able to put on your canvas, the more beautiful uh, it will uh, uh, become. And so that's what you, you're supposed to uh, uh, supposed to be doing with your life. You know, try to make it beautiful, man. Try to make your life beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, man. You, um, you're an incredible dude, Keith. You really are an incredible dude. Yeah, yeah. Um, I appreciate you saying that, man. No, yeah. yeah. You, I tell you, I, I've been telling you this a lot, but you give me a lot of life. And so yeah. just, just, just know that there's another brother in Brooklyn that really thinks the world of you and you know since I've gotten connected with you I honestly I don't think there's a day that I don't think about you um yeah, yeah. I'm actually I get a little emotional thinking about it but um but you like you really mean a lot to me man um you really I mean a lot to that, me man. you mean a lot to me too Wally um, you know uh it's mutual bro it's mutual man um you know you know uh when I first embarked on this journey you know and start reading, start trying to learn how to write. I never did so with the uh, with the idea that I would one day be talking to you on the phone, that I would one day have a literacy project. That you know, I speak in colleges all over the country, man. It, it's rewarding to be able to do that because those are also young people in need of some kind of instruction and whatnot. But you know, I, I, I get the most uh, reward from talking to average you know, kids who are in these juvenile facilities because those are, are younger versions of myself, right? You know, and so, but I never thought that I would be able to, that, that my life, you know, that the lessons that I've learned from my life would be of any value to anybody but myself. And so to hear you say that, you know, something that I've uh, gained from my struggles, uh, um, it's meaningful to you in your life that make my struggles and everything that I've been through uh, worthwhile. That, you know, all that pain and whatnot was not in vain. And so, you know, uh, yeah, man, you know, thanks for that. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I told you this before, but there's one thing, and, and we've, we've talked about this a little bit, but, you know, you said, you said it yourself, like, this might end in a way that we don't want it to end, right? But, uh, it won't end in vain. Certainly not on your end, and, and definitely not on mine. Um, because you know, I think we we fighting together, man. And um, the fight looks a little yeah, but see, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, properly understood, the fight. You know, I'm not. I, I don't want to live forever, Wally. Right? You know, uh, it's not even in my pos- It's not even in my power to arrange that, even if I wanted to. But I don't, though. You know, the thing that make this life so uh, meaningful is that it's finite. You know, that's the only reason why it means anything, because we can lose it. You know, so I, I, I live with that awareness. I, you know, This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. I'm on death row, so it's hard for me not to be uh, aware that my life is limited. I mean, it's in the name, death row, you know. Like this thing that we involved in, man, it's 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 miraculous, Wally. 
if you think about it. I mean, if you really, really just start reading and thinking about what it means to be alive. You know, it took over four billion years for us human beings to arrive on the scene. And we only been here for five minutes. Look how much destruction we have caused. I mean, it's devastating, man. I mean, dinosaurs had to be totally wiped out in order for us to even, you know, you know, uh, uh, come into being. And, you know, we, we, you know, all that trouble, you know, to make us, and look what we have done, man. And it's because, you know, a, a, a lack of a, a understanding about who we are and why we are here. You know, that's one of the things that, you know, I learned, you know, while sleeping in that mattress. You know, while on home strike, while, you know, starving myself. That, that, that this life is precious, not, not because uh, we are alive, but because one day we won't be. And so, you know, when I'm sitting in pain and I'm painting with the awareness that this pain is going, this painting will be here long after I'm gone. So I make sure I put my all into what I do, man. Everything I do is going to survive me. You know, and I, and I just wanted to be said, I was here. Like if there's, for anybody listening to this right now, what message do you want to give to them? What do you want them to take away from, from Keith Lamar and like what you've been through and, and what you're going through right now? You know, you know, my main goal, my main objective in uh, uh, protesting this this wrongful conviction is not so much to receive an exoneration. I mean, that's the ideal, obviously. But I understand that, you know, that that uh, outcome is not totally up to me. But my my goal, or my primary goal, is to see that these people not be able to say that justice was done in my situation. So that's, you know, part of the reason why I wrote Condemned, to lay out my case in the court of public opinion and have people understand what was done to me and uh, what is ultimately being uh, done in their name. You know, should I be executed? Should uh, I one day find myself uh, uh, tied down to a gurney with poison pumping through my veins? That would be done in taxpayers' name. And so that being the case, I want taxpayers to understand what's being done in their name and to understand also that it's being done to an innocent innocent man. No matter how uh, insignificant you may seem or your life may seem, the truth of the matter is that your life is very important, uh, that you are here for a reason, and that it's incumbent on you as an individual to pursue that reason. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. I mean, I, I tell the story all the time about how after 18 years I was able to touch my family again. And that, that might seem like a small thing to be able to give somebody a hug. But when you've been deprived of that privilege for almost two decades, it's a monumental thing. And you know, when I was first, on my first visit, man, my heart was beating outside my chest. But for someone who have never been deprived of that, you don't really know how important it is to be able to, to hug somebody to hold somebody's hand, you know, to be, you know, to love somebody. And, 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 and you know, we think, and I, I know I did when I was growing up that having material things is the be all, end all, but that is nothing, that's nothing. That has nothing to do with why we're here. We're here to love each other, man. You know, Thomas Merton, he said that, that our true destiny is love, that we find the meaning of life not, not by ourselves, but with another, and that's true, man. 
you know, so, you know, if, if you know, somebody listening to this and, and, and waiting on me, waiting on a, a, a takeaway, you know, that's it, man. Love is the only freedom. Love is the only thing that really matters, man. The need to abolish capital punishment in this country couldn't be more apparent than it is today. From wrongful convictions to botched executions, we need to put an end to this outdated system. Yet we continue to employ it, even though it's undeniably flawed. Since 1973, 170 people have been exonerated and taken off death row. And according to the National Registry for Exonerations, misconduct by police and prosecutors, or both, was done in 79% of homicide exonerations in 2018. And research from the Death Penalty Information Center suggests that the rate of official misconduct is more common in death penalty cases involving black defendants. For example, 87% of black death row exonerees were victims of official misconduct. Ironically, the US criminal justice system is just that, criminal. And when you unveil the methods used by those in power, the data suggests that state-administered killing is deeply racialized. So it isn't hard to conclude that this type of malpractice occurred in Keith's case. Keith is a victim of the system. In my eyes, his situation is no different than that of George Floyd's. It's just set within a different context. Just like George, Brianna, and Eric, Keith's life matters too. He's still breathing, and we can do something about it. Keith has become one of my dearest friends, a big brother if you will. He's taught me more in the past six weeks than any of my college professors ever did. Everything from jazz to philosophy, shit, even some mental health stuff. I never thought I'd have this type of relationship with someone on death row, but here I am. In a recent conversation we shared, Keith told me this, you are my life and my life is beautiful. It's probably the nicest thing anyone has ever said to me. And I'm humbled and amazed that his light shines so bright, even though he lives in a world so dark. I love you, Keith. Your little brother, Wali. Alright, before we wrap up this episode, I just want to first thank Keith for joining me. He's a beautiful soul, beautiful spirit, my big brother. And I thank him because he's given me far more than I could ever give him. So thank you, Keith. Also, I just want to share with you some actions you can take to help support Keith's fight. You can visit his website, keithlamar.org. You can also support his Native Sons Literacy Program by visiting nativesonsliteracy.org. I'd also highly recommend that you purchase his book, Condemned. Miraculously, Keith published the book himself, and it's available for purchase on Amazon. His book might be the single most impactful book I've ever read. More people need to know about his story and other types of racial injustices that continue to exist in our criminal justice system. Make sure to follow Keith Lamar's social media pages, at Justice for Keith Lamar. There you can learn more about what's going on in the day-to-day fight to save his life and hopefully obtain his freedom. Lastly, come join us this Sunday, August 23rd, 3 p.m. Eastern Time in Brooklyn's Grand Army Plaza. Musicians United will be organizing Freedom First. 
It's a jazz tribute to Keith Lamar. Keith has chosen 10 of his favorite jazz songs for them to play, and it'll be an incredible opportunity for all of us to come together and support Keith in his fight for justice. So bring a mask this Sunday, August 23rd, 3 p.m. Eastern, Grand Army Plaza, Brooklyn. It's gonna be an incredible event, and I hope to see you there. Always peace, always love.